Today, I would like to continue with our message from last Lord's Day, Resurrection Day. We're looking at the one chapter in the Bible that is totally committed to explaining the meaning and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this magnificent event that occurred so long ago. Now, Paul does so, that is, focusing on this important event, by asking and answering four questions. Each of the questions was motivated by the introduction of Paul's teaching in the church at Corinth after he left. And they were teaching that there would be no resurrection of the dead. Now, as I'm sure you will recall, the first question Paul asks and answers is, is the resurrection of the dead a fact? Or, to put it another way, as the text presents it, has anyone ever really been raised from the dead? Paul answers this question in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15 by emphatically stating that Christ has risen from the dead. And he states it very emphatically. This historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul says, establishes the fact that the dead do in fact raise, never to die again. His was a true, that is, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, was a true, genuine resurrection, not a restitution, or resuscitation rather, because there were the people who were raised from the dead, but they died again. Jesus Christ is the first person to experience a genuine resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed, Christ has really, Christ has positively been raised from the dead. It's an emphatic statement. It's an historical statement here. Notice also Paul says that Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. There is a difference in scripture between the resurrection of the dead and the resurrection from the dead. The previous verses of chapter 15 that we looked at last time have been dealing with the resurrection of the dead. Trying to establish the fact that there is indeed a resurrection of the dead. But now Paul is establishing another truth. And it is the fact that the resurrection of the dead is established by the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Paul has been arguing, as it were, in a general way, that the dead do indeed rise and will rise again. But Christ has risen from the dead. This means, therefore, that when he rose, not all the dead rose with him. Only he was raised. That's the point. But that one resurrection establishes the fact that all the dead will rise. Now in this sense, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a limited resurrection. Every resurrection is a resurrection of the dead. But only that of Christ and the believers will be a resurrection from among the dead. I'll be talking more about this in a moment. I'm just reviewing what we did last time. But now having established the fact that the dead do in fact raise because of the fact that Christ was raised himself, Paul then moves on to answer a second question. We also looked at this last time, but for review. The question is, when are or will the dead in general be raised? When or will the dead be raised? Paul answers this question 
by describing the order or sequence of the resurrection of all the dead in their turn. He's going to describe the resurrection of all the dead. And he does so by showing that there's going to be an order of the resurrections. Christ, he says, is the first fruits or forerunner of all who will be resurrected. This text says, Christ, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. As we explained last time, Jesus' resurrection was the first fruit or guarantee of all the resurrections yet to come. Because he was raised, so will all men be raised in their turn. Jesus' resurrection, therefore, was one of the most momentous events ever to occur on planet Earth. It inaugurated the true beginning of what we call the last days. As someone has said, and I quote, it was, the resurrection of Christ was the emergence within time of a new order of life. Now I want to re-emphasize this point the way I emphasized it last resurrection day. This truth, this amazing fact that Jesus Christ began the process of the resurrection of the dead is a truth we do not consider as much as we should. It does not have the impact upon the believer the way Paul would like for it to have. Paul is saying here, it was no longer that resurrection would happen, but that the resurrection has happened. He's not saying that the resurrection process is in the future. He says that the resurrection process has already begun. It began when Jesus Christ walked out of that tomb. The process was started. The beginning of the end times had begun. In other words, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the righteous, started with the resurrection of the one who makes us righteous, Jesus Christ himself. The resurrection process, I repeat, I re-emphasize, began with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. With his resurrection, we actually entered into and began to experience the execution of God's plan and purpose that would bring an end to the reign and dominion of sin, Satan, death, and hell. And it began on that first resurrection day with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. My friends, this is not an event I say that we have to look forward to begin. It has already started. Jesus Christ inaugurated a new order of life when he rose from the dead. And we are now living in the process and reality of that new world order. I want you to get that. This is what makes the Christian different, as it were, from everyone else. We are living in a world that they know nothing of. It's a world that was brought into existence by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now this introduction of a new spiritual reality and world order is seen in the nature of the body of the risen Christ. Please remember, the empty tomb in itself does not prove the fact of the resurrection. All it proves is that Jesus' body is not there. Somebody could have stolen it. It does not prove the fact of the resurrection. None of the disciples, in fact, believe in the resur resurrection of Christ because they saw the empty tomb. But rather, it was because they saw the risen Christ. And more importantly, they saw him in a way they had never seen him before. That's what you have to keep in mind here. They saw him after the resurrection, in a way, in a body in which they had never seen him before. 
Mary didn't recognize him. The two disciples in the road to Emmaus did not recognize him until he purposely revealed himself to them. Even the apostles didn't believe that it was him until he showed them his hands and his feet, the nail wounds in them. But what did the empty tomb prove? It proves that the nature of the resurrected body of Christ was different from the body he had before he died. And please get this because we overlook this. The empty tomb proves that the nature of the body of Jesus Christ was different from the nature of the body he had before he died, before he went into that tomb. This was a body now, I'm going to take a few moments here. This new body of Christ was a body that belonged to a different time and a different world. But yet, this body could now interact within time and within this world. This body was a body designed for another world and another time, eternity. But now this body of Jesus Christ was interacting within the present time of the disciples. In other words, we have eternity and time coming together in the body of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ. We have time and eternity. We have the spiritual and the physical becoming one. That's a new world. That never existed before. For anyone, Jesus Christ is the first one to experience it. I want you to get a hold of what happened when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He truly, I say, inaugurated a new world order, a spiritual one. His body belonged to an age to come. But it was present in the age that was. The first resurrection started. And we are in that process right now. In fact, the next to be resurrected are the believers in Christ who die in Christ. And you can believe that we will be raised with the same kind of intensity, the same kind of conviction, the same kind of assurance that you can believe that Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. You can believe it. And if you do, it should transform your life. You begin to live in this new world order that Jesus Christ brought into being right now. My friends, one day, if you are a believer in Christ, we'll see Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, but not until you have had your body transformed in the same kind of body he has. Because the only way we'll be able to behold Jesus Christ in his transformed body is for our bodies to be transformed itself. But now, that's where we stopped last time. We pick up now for today. Paul goes on to explain what will happen after the resurrection of the saints. He is concerned that we know about the proper sequence of the last days. And this is important for us to understand the sequence of the last days. Because remember, the last days have already been ushered into because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So when we're talking about the last days, we're talking about the days in which we live. It's not tomorrow, next year. It's the days in which we live. You have to get a hold of that. Because see, when we talk about prophecy, we're always looking about what's going to happen in the next 7, 15, 20,000 years. <clears throat> it's begun with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These events are all tied together. Verse 24 says, then the end will come when he, that's Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he, 
Jesus has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now between verses 23 and 24, much time has elapsed. Over 2,000 years up to this point. And we're still looking forward to at least another 1,000 years. So a long time has elapsed between 23 and 24. In the text, depending on which version you have, it says, then the end will come. That then looks beyond the rapture and the resurrection of the saints and even beyond the tribulation. It looks ahead to Christ's final victory over all of his enemies. And so the end here refers to the end of the resurrection of the dead, both the saved and the unsaved. At the close of Christ's millennial reign, a thousand year reign, which comes after the tribulation, when he would have put all his enemies under his feet, then there will be the resurrection of the dead. That's the end of the resurrection of all the dead. This is the last resurrection to ever take place. The resurrection of the wicked. All who have ever died in unbelief will stand before the great white throne judgment to hear how God will vindicate his allowing them to go to hell rather than to glory. There are three stages as far as the first resurrection is concerned. The first stage, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Second stage, the resurrection and translation of the church, which you call the rapture. The third stage is the resurrection of the tribulation martyrs in the Old Testament saints that takes place at the end of the tribulation. After the millennium, then we have the resurrection of the unrighteous. Now up to that time, the Lord Jesus Christ should have been reigning as the Son of Man, serving as God's mediator, as ruler on earth. At the end of the thousand year reign, God's purpose on earth will have been perfectly accomplished. All opposition will have been put down and all enemies destroyed. The reign of Christ as the Son of Man will then give way to his eternal kingdom in heaven. His reign as Son of God in heaven will then continue forever. That's why Paul says in verse 25, For he, the Son, must reign until he has put his, all his, that's the Father's enemy, under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now I want you to understand that Paul is teaching all of this truth because of the implications of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If that didn't happen, none of this could happen. None of it. So this means that the kingdom will not be put back into, that is the universal kingdom of God, will not be put back into the direct administration of God the Father, as it was before Lucifer's rebellion, until death has been conquered once for all. This will happen after the rapture, after the tribulation, and after the millennial reign. But Paul wants us to understand that it's only way it's going to happen is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ occurred. It'll happen when Jesus Christ then will put the dragon, the old serpent, will be consigned to the lake of fire. By the way, that's what all the fuss between good and evil is all about in the world today. Right here. For God once more to be reigning as God supreme without any opposition. Satan is trying right now to usurp the godness of God so that he could take his place as the God of the universal kingdom. God the Father chose his son as his champion to do battle with Satan. It started long before creation, but it will end when Jesus Christ cast him in the lake of fire forever. I say again, this will happen at the climax of the great white throne judgment, when he will be cast into the lake of fire along with Hades and hell. But it all began 
with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are in the process right now. I want you to understand that we are, we are not outside looking in. We are inside the process. Verse 27, Paul sums it up. For he, the Father, has put everything under Jesus' feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under Jesus, it is clear that this, not, this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When the Father has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to the Father, who put everything under Jesus, so that God the Father may be all in all. That's where all of history is directed, right here. This is the apex, this is the end point of human history, right here. Who put everything under him so that God the Father may be all in all. All human history is directed toward that end. God has a plan and that's the end of the process. In other words, the universal kingdom of God, which was administered by Jesus Christ as God's mediator, will once more be turned over to the Father. Now remember... I want to repeat, all of this will only possible because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that would not happen. His resurrection started it all, as it were. He started the beginning of the end. He was the first fruits. He initiated the beginning of the end of the cosmic conflict between God and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, between God and Satan. And now we as believers, because we are a part of the harvest of resurrected ones of which he was the first fruit, we are an integral part of the harvest of the resurrection unto life. Do you get that? Do you get that? We are a part of the harvest of the resurrected ones unto life. And it all started, I say, with Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. He assures us of our own resurrection. Paul continues to logically argue for the fact that the believer's resurrection by using one of the Corinthians' religious rites as one of his points. And so he asks and answers the third question. Why? Are the dead raised? Paul gives three answers to this question. In beginning at verse 29. First he says, one of the reasons why the dead will be raised because the resurrection of the dead provides for hope after death. This is what he says in verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, that's what the false teachers were saying, why are people baptized for them? Now this verse is perhaps one of the most difficult and obscure verses in the entire Bible. Nobody knows what this means. But I'm going to take 20 minutes to tell you what it means. Only kidding. Oh, really, this is a very, very difficult verse. Now, many explanations have been offered as to its meaning. I'm going to take time to mention several of them because I believe that many of you who are Bible students who read your Bible have been puzzled about this. Now, those of you who don't read your Bible, it doesn't matter because you don't know about it in the first place. That's a dig. Uh, but for those of you who do, this is a problem passage for many. All right? First of all, it is contended by some that living believers may be baptized for those who have died without having been baptized themselves. In other words, if you're a believer and you died but didn't get baptized, then somebody will be baptized for you. But this is quite foreign to scripture. I personally don't buy into this at all, this particular one. And it's only based on this verse and it, it, because of... Uh, Scripture in general, I believe this should be rejected. It just doesn't have support. A second view is that baptism for the dead means that in baptism, we reckon ourselves to have died. 
In other words, it's the Christian saying that because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we baptize, we die ourselves. And when we baptize, we demonstrate that we have died to the old life. We teach this kind of a thing from a spiritual point of view. But now, quite a number of conservatives buy into this. They say that um, what is being done here then is that the person is simply saying that in my baptism, I'm, being, I'm baptizing uh, by, by saying that uh, I am being united to the death of Jesus Christ. And now I live a new life. person who has died before me didn't do that, so I need to do it for them. Again, I don't think this has too much biblical support either. Now, the third view that I am inclined to go along with, and it's one that I believe is accepted by most conservative Bible scholars, is one that appears in the Believer's Bible Commentary. So in order not to go into it too deeply, I'll simply quote a passage of Scripture that reflects my own thinking as well. He says, The interpretation which seems to suit the context best, and it's always important to look for context. At the time Paul wrote, there was fierce persecution against those who took a public stand for Christ. This persecution was especially vicious at the time of their baptism. It often happened that those who publicly proclaimed their faith in Christ in the waters of baptism were martyred shortly thereafter. But did this stop others from being saved and from taking their place in baptism? No. It seemed as though there were always new replacements coming along to fill up the ranks of those who had been martyred. As they stepped into the waters of baptism, in a very real sense, they were being baptized for or in the place of. That's one of the meanings of the Greek word here, for, in place of the dead, as a substitution. Hence, the dead here refers to those who died as a result of the bold witness for Christ. Now, the apostle's argument is that it would be foolish to be so baptized to fill up the ranks of those who are died if there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. It would be like sending replacement troops to fill up the ranks of an army that is fighting a lost cause. It would be like fighting in a hopeless situation, end of quote. So what he's saying is, no, this simply means that uh, when a person, uh, uh, this is the right that the Corinthians seem to have had, that when they are baptized, they were saying that, hey, we are filling in the rank or the place of those who were killed because of the profession of faith in Christ. Now that seems like a, 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 an appropriate one for me, but we don't know if it's true or not. As I said, this is an obscure verse. There's one uh, denomination that practices baptism for the dead, that's the Mormons. And they do that because of the emphasis on what? Spiritual children. All right? So, I see it then here, and it comes really in time. Remember, during our conference, we talked about martyrs and the fact that the blood of the martyrs is a seed of the church. Isn't that right? It seems that the more persecution the church has, the more it grows. That seems to be the idea here. Paul's saying, why do that if there's no resurrection from the dead? That'll be foolish. That's the first argument. But then he goes on. He says, there must be a resurrection of the dead also because it validates the apostolic preaching, the gospel in spite of persecution and danger. Verse 30. As for us, meaning the apostles, but in context, again, the book of Corinthians, especially talking about Apollos, Cephas, and himself, because those are the ones that were being dealt with in Corinthians. As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I die every day. I mean that, brothers, just as surely as I glory over you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, for merely human reasons, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, let's look at this carefully. The Apostle Paul, as well as the other apostles, was constantly exposed to danger, to being killed, to being martyred. 
because of their preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you remember we looked at the gospel. The gospel contained what? The teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, the apostles were being killed for preaching the message of the resurrection. But because of their fearlessness in preaching the resurrection, he made enemies wherever he went. All kinds of plots were hatched against him in an effort to kill him. He could have avoided all of this by abandoning his profession of faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it would have been wise for him, from a human point of view, to abandon his preaching if there's no such thing as a resurrection from the dead. Because why be killed for something that is not true? That's his argument. It would have been much wiser for him to adopt the philosophy, if the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, and that's it. Boom, boom, finish. Now, we hear some Christians sometimes say that if this life were all, then it would still be better to be Christians because we'll live a good life. And then when we die, well, since there's nothing after, we haven't lost anything. Paul doesn't agree with that argument at all. Paul says that's irrational. Paul says, if there were no resurrection, it would be better off for us to make most of this life, to have all the fun we can. Because at the end, we've got nobody to come to. Boom, it's done with. That's Paul's reasoning. So Paul is saying, hey, from our perspective, if the resurrection wasn't true, and he's going to dwell on this later, then my being willing to risk my life for preaching the resurrection is nonsense. It's foolishness, because I'll have no reward afterwards. It's done. And so he makes a pronouncement now in verses 33 and 34. This is what he says. Do not be misled. The King James says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. Verse 34. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop sinning. I want you to see that. They were sinning because of what they were exposing themselves to under the preaching of false teachers. Stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. He's writing to the Corinthians. I say this to your shame. First Paul says, be careful little is what you listen to in church and on TV. Amen. That's what he's saying. Be careful little is what you hear in church and what you listen to on TV. Now that's a little, that isn't in scripture here, but the application is nonetheless true. He's saying, do not be deceived. In context, meaning do not be conceived by those who are denying the resurrection of the dead. The Christians should realize that it is impossible to associate with evil people or evil teachings without being corrupted in their character. Well, we need this today. And this is a teaching that comes from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evil doctrine always affects a person's life, especially their character. False teachings do not lead to holiness. It leads to immorality and a loose way of life. That's what he's preaching. It leads to the corruption of character. This is why it amazes me that so many otherwise involved Christians could tune in on a daily basis and to listen to people who they know teach false doctrine or could listen to a video or read a book or everything and they know it's written or it's being preached by someone who preaches false doctrine and they take it in day after day after day. This is what Paul is warning against. And so he says, secondly, Listening to such false teaching is sin. Stop it, he says. Also, apparently there were those in the fellowship at Corinth 
who did not have the knowledge of God. In other words, they were not true believers. In other words, there were tears amongst the wheat. Now, you know, I like to make the Bible very relevant and practical. That's true right here today. There's some tears among the wheat. Now, I don't know who you are, but you know. And so does God. There were tears among the wheat as well as wolves in sheep clothing who were false teachers crept in unawares. You see, that's why we here as pastors insist, now it isn't always followed out through all the time, that before anyone is allowed to teach or to come to a seminar at Calvary Bible Church, that the pastoral board is made aware and give the approval. This is one reason. Otherwise, we could allow false teaching to come in unawares. That's what was happening here. It was to the shame of the Corinthians that these men were allowed to take their place within the Christian community and teach these false doctrine. The carelessness which left ungodly people entered the assembly resulting in lowering the congregation's moral tone. That's why one of the reasons Corinth is such a problematic church. It was allowing people like this to teach in the church. And Paul is concerned, though, with the corruption of the teaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And saying, hey, this thing should make an impact on your life to make you a more godly person, not a more immoral person. As many of the Christians were at Corinth. Now, if you recall, the Apostle John deals with the same situation in 1 John. What was denied then was the truth of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Teachers had come into the local assembly teaching that Jesus Christ was not born in the flesh. God did not come in the flesh. I'm pointing it out to say false doctrine by false teachers has been in the church from its very beginning. And many times it's because we are careless and loose in how we protect the people of God from false teaching. I am firmly convinced that it's because of the failure to be the kind of protectors we need in our churches as a whole that the reason why there's a lack of genuine holiness and morality in many congregations is because of erroneous teaching. Because Paul says in the context, evil teaching leads to a corrupt character, teaching of the word. Now, Paul goes on to answer a fourth question that was being asked at Corinth concerning the resurrection of the dead. And that question is, how are the dead raised? Notice what he says in verse 35. But someone may ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? This is a fascinating question. In other words, how do you expect, Paul, the dead body to be gathered up again, to be reorganized after he had rotted and decayed? Perhaps he died in the war. He stepped on a bomb or something. And how in the world is his body going to be reorganized again? The question is in two parts, as you can see. One is general, the other is specific. The first is answered in verse 36. And actually, Paul is almost agitated to have to answer this because he's been teaching these people. He's almost agitated to have the answer. Now, King James says, you fool. I can say that. <laughs> How foolish. You shouldn't even ask that question if you've been listening to my teaching. I'd like to say that sometimes, but I can say that. How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. In other words, the principle of resurrection occurs all the time in nature. 
In fact, it is designed by God to teach us the truth of resurrection. God is our teacher through the creation. Paul says it very clearly in Romans 1. Now, who's the teacher? Not Alan Lee. Not even Paul. The teacher is God himself. And he's been teaching through his creation concerning his power and so on from the very moment of creation. He's still doing it. Is what Paul is saying. And he begins to answer the second part of the question, verse 37. He says, When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be there, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. Now Paul is very logical, very practical. It's almost as he's teaching children. He says, man, just use your head. That's all. Of course, for some of us, it may be a little difficult because we don't know too much about planting and, and all that kind of stuff. But he's very logical here. He's asking the Christians on us to think. Think, Christian, think, is what he's saying. God is still teaching us through his creation, and he's teaching us about the resurrection. Is the plant the same as the seed? No, it isn't. The plant and the seed are different. But yet the same. Isn't that right? The plant and the seed are different. But they're the same. But to us the plant is not the same as the seed. However, there's still a very vital connection or relationship between the two. You can't have one without the other. Without the seed, there'd be no plant. Paul is trying to teach what we're just learning about DNA. The plant derives its features or its characteristics or its DNA from the seed. Paul is saying that's the same way with the resurrected body. Same way. Something goes into the ground, but something different comes up. But it's still connected. Here's how one commentator puts it. Quote, The resurrection body has identity of kind and continuity of substance with that which is sown. But, and here's why I quote this one, because I like this word, it is purified from corruption, from dishonor, and weakness. And it is made incorrupt. It is made glorious. It is made powerful. It is made spiritual. It is the same body, but it is sown in one form and raised in another. End of quote. That's what Paul is saying, that nature teaches us about creation. You asking this question? Go on the farm. Is that where you go to think? Yeah, or go on the farm. On the land. Now notice verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has determined. Now that's the key. God gives it a body as he has determined. I want you to bear in mind that Paul is teaching us about our bodies that will be resurrected as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What kind of body? Well, it's going to be a body that God himself determines. And Paul is going to make a point that he's going to determine that your body be one way and my body be another way. This is, a, this is a wonderful passage. I love this. God gives it a body as he determined. Now notice, unto each kind of seed, he gives its own body. So you all just, you're not going to look like me. I know you want to, but you're not going to look like me. <laughs> God is going to have a body designed just for you. Now, I want you to get this now. See, this is a wonderful truth, man. We like to think that when we made an image of Jesus Christ, our bodies can be that we can look like Jesus. That ain't true. We can have a body like his, but we're not going to look like him. God is designing a body. Boy, he got a job on his hands when it comes to me, but he's got a body <laughs> that he's designing for each one of us if we take this to be true. 
God will give each seed the kind of body he has designed for them, each after its own species, but all the ingredients and features of that resurrected body were and are already present in the body that died. In other words, although we're going to see a different body, you're going to still know that this is Alan Lee. Our identity will not be lost, although our features will be transformed. This is beautiful. Now, he applies the same principle to man as well as animals and birds. Verse 39, all the flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh, animals have another kind of flesh, birds another kind of flesh, and fish has another kind of flesh. He then applies the same principle to the heavenlies to illustrate the fact that the glory, of, and this is where it gets so great, to illustrate the fact that the glory of the resurrected body will be different from the glory of our present bodies or whatever it is. But we will retain our own identity. And so the apostle points out that there's also differences in the bodies themselves. Verse 40. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor, I love that. Oh, listen, beloved, we have to look forward to his splendorious. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind. Notice, heavenly bodies. And the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. He's starting to contrast now, not compare heaven with earth. Just as there is a difference between the splendor of the heavenly bodies, the stars and so on, and the bodies which are associated with this earth, so there is a difference between the body of the believer now and the one which we will have after death. Now remember, Paul is teaching all of this in connection with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is why the resurrection of Christ has such a far-reaching impact upon the way we live. Verse 41. The sun has one kind of splendor. The moon, another kind of splendor. And the stars, another kind of splendor. And star differs from star in splendor. Now this is a mystery to me. There are differences of degree in the different kinds of splendor for the different bodies. See, God is not, God likes variety. The sun, for instance, is brighter than the moon. And one star differs from another star in its brightness. Now when I read this, you know, something struck me. Because I don't know how many of you are concerned about the theory of evolution. But you know we like to talk about the stars have their brightness because of how far they have come. Through the light years and so on. Right? In other words, what it's saying here is that the brighter the star is, the more ancient or older it is. Why? Because it comes more into view. We can see its brightness. The reason why some are so dim is because they haven't traveled as far. In other words, our view of the brightness depends upon how far or how long it has traveled. Now, i got a problem with that, according to this verse. Because this verse seems to tell me that God has placed the splendor and the difference of splendor and brightness into the stars when they were created. Now, I can leave that there. You all who like evolution could talk about that. All right? Now, here is the point, though. Some will say that Paul is comparing and contrasting the pre- and the post-resurrection bodies of believers, and not to the degree of glory believers will share in heavenly themselves. I don't believe that at all. I believe that Paul is saying that somehow the believer, based on his faithfulness to Christ, will vary in degrees of splendor in the body they have. In other words, I believe that although we will all resemble the Lord Jesus morally, that is, in freedom from sin, it does not follow that we shall all look like the Lord Jesus physically. Jesus will be distinctly recognizable as he is throughout all eternity. Likewise, I believe the scripture is teaching us that we will also 
how a different and distinct personality, recognizable as such, but will be differing in glory. There will be differences of reward at the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. There will be a difference. How is it going to be manifested? I believe it's the way that our body will glow. That's my words. While we will all be supremely happy in glory, some will have a greater capacity for enjoying heaven. Just as there will be difference of suffering in hell, according to the sins that a man has committed, so there will be difference of enjoyment in heaven according to what we have done as believers. That's why Paul says in verse 42, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And Paul goes on to make an application, but we're going to end here for the day, and tonight we finish it. But I want you to revel as a believer in this wonderful truth that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, one day our bodies will be changed just like his. And he is going to transform us into the image that he wants each of us to have to manifest, to reflect his glory. What a glory that will be. Father, thank you for your word. Grant that we might take the warning of Paul here today, not to associate or to listen to false teachers, and that we might seek to live our lives according to the new order that Jesus Christ has brought about because of his resurrection. And that's a spiritual order that causes us to live as unto God and not unto ourselves. Grant, we pray, that the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will impact our lives today for our good and his glory. And all of God's people said, Amen.